Well, amen. All right, well, good morning, Mercy Fellowship. Hope you guys are all doing well. You guys and gals are all doing well this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Curtis. I serve here at the church as an elder in training and uh, honored to be preaching, covering the pulpit this week. Uh, we are in week two of going through the Upside Down Kingdom, which is a sermon series that me and, and Pastor Matt are going to be going through this summer on the Sermon on the Mount. And the idea behind the upside down kingdom is this, the, the values of the kingdom of heaven are different than the values of the world. Uh, the economy of the kingdom of heaven is different than the economy of the world. And you say, well, how so? Well, think about what Jesus says in the gospels. He says a lot of things, but a lot of things that kind of catch our attention and seem backwards to us. Jesus will say things like, hey, if you want to be great, you need to go ahead and serve and become the least of these. If you want to be first, you need to become last. Uh, if you want to live, you need to die to yourself. Completely backwards from, from the way the world presents things. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he'll pick up on this and he'll go ahead and say, hey, God is using the foolish to shame the wise. And God is using the, the weak to shame the strong. And so in light of this upside-down kingdom that we see from Jesus and what he's presenting, two observations I want to make as we move forward before we uh, begin looking at the text. The first one's this. Perhaps we don't understand Jesus as well as we think. Perhaps we don't understand Jesus as well as we think, church. Um, whether you're here and you don't know Jesus, or whether you've been following Jesus a really long time, the Apostle Paul would remind you and me that in Christ there are unsearchable riches, which means this, that there is no depth to knowing, savoring, loving, and experiencing who Jesus is. So with that in mind, just this idea, this image of, hey, maybe you and me, we've discovered the tip of the iceberg. Maybe we know a little bit about who Jesus is, and yet beneath the water there is still so much to uncover and know about who Jesus is and to enjoy. Uh, the second thing, though, is this, and I think it gets missed, but it shouldn't. The second point I want to make is that Jesus is the creator of the church, all right? This is not my idea gathering here and having all these pews and a lot of purple in this building. It wasn't Jesus' idea either. Um, it wasn't Matt's idea for us to gather here at this building, okay? This is Jesus' idea of a body of believers gathering together and worshiping and savoring and enjoying him. And he's preaching in his Sermon on the Mount. He's preaching to his disciples saying, hey, you want to be a follower of me? You want to be a disciple of mine? Well, you need to fall in line with how the kingdom ethics are. You need to fall in line with how the kingdom economy runs, Matt, a couple of weeks ago, he covered the Beatitudes. It's a list of what God deems blessed, and it's a, a list of marginalized people. It's a list of, of people that are suffering and people that are thirsting for righteousness but not finding their palate quenched in the world. So the question then comes to this. Okay, we know who can be a part of the kingdom, okay? There's a wide range. Jesus' arms are open. There's a seat at the table. Anyone can be a part of the kingdom of heaven. But now that you're a part of the kingdom, how are we supposed to live? And that's a great question to ask, right? Be reminded, church, what Pastor Chris has said on numerous occasions. He says, clarity is kindness. And it's really good to be clear so that you can aim correctly and know where you're going in life. So, all that being said, right, perhaps we don't know Jesus as well as we think. Jesus, he is the creator of the church. Let's see what Jesus, the creator of the church, 
has to say to us and how we ought to live. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Jesus, he says this, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. First thing I want us to, to know, it's hard when we just chop up Jesus' Sermon on the Mount to various sermons. We can miss the tone that Jesus has. Because what happens in the Beatitudes is Jesus has a, a very generic tone. Blessed are these people, blessed are that people, blessed is this group, and blessed is that group. And he changes his tone from just kind of being very wide range to almost pointing his fingers at the disciples and saying, hey, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And I love this transition that Jesus is doing in, in this sermon because I think of it this way. All of these unwanted people from the world, Jesus is inviting in. He's inviting the outcasts, the weak, the poor, the marginalized, and he's letting them know, hey, the world's rejected you. I'm not going to reject you. There's not a place for you in the world. There's a place for you here in the kingdom of God. Man may reject you, but God welcomes you, and God brings in all of these unwelcomed people, and he saves them. He heals them. He restores them into the image and likeness of Christ. And after doing so, then goes ahead and sends them back out into the world that rejected them to be salt and light to it. I think it's such a fascinating transition the way that Jesus goes. And so church, this morning, if you're a Christian, this is your story. This is your story as well. Uh, there's a thing that happens in Christian circles and in churches where it's like, oh, well, do you know the date of when you were saved? Do you know the exact day? And some of you do. Some of you know the exact moment and the exact hour for when you first trust in Jesus. Some of you grew up in church and have no clue when you first trusted in Jesus. If you grew up in church and trust in Jesus, that's a miracle because church is weird. That's really impressive. And what happens, though, is this. We can get really caught up on that. Do you remember when you trusted Jesus? And perhaps you don't know. But I do know this for every Christian, though. Every Christian at some point in their life came to the conclusion at one point, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. And he invited you into his life. And he saved you from Satan. He saved you from your sins and sins done against you. He saved you not only from physical death, but eternal death and hell. Jesus not only invited you in and saved you, but he's healing you. He's healing wounds that you've incurred from this world. And now Jesus is in the process of restoring his people, restoring them to the image and likeness of Jesus, and sending them back into, out into the world for the purpose of redemption. So when Jesus talks about salt and light, what's he talking about? Well, when Jesus talks about salt, he's talking about preserving that which is good, right? Obviously, in Jesus' day, they didn't have refrigeration, and so the way that they would preserve things is that they would salt them. So primarily, when the meats would be salted, it would go ahead and pull the water, extract the water, and it would dehydrate the meat so that it would last for a certain amount of time. And that's the idea. You preserve that which is good. You're not preserving old, rotten meat. 
You preserve that which is good. And that's what Jesus calls you and I to do in society. We as followers of Jesus, we are meant to be within culture, preserving that which is good. But what about light? I think this analogy is fascinating because it's twofold. Light, in one sense, it exposes that which is dark. It illuminates that which is dark. On the other side, though, light gives life. And this is so practical for us, right? Feels like for a decade that we haven't had any sun here in Washington, although yesterday was pretty awesome. But what does the sun do? In the most literal sense, that light that comes from the sun, it gives life. I mean, you even think about the Apostle John in the beginning of his gospel. He says this about Jesus connecting those two. He says that in the beginning was the Word, was, was with God, Word was God. And then he goes on to say that in Jesus is life, and in him the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome. So Jesus, he uses these two analogies of salt and light, calling you and I to play our part in the work of redemption, of healing, and of transformation in this world, which means this for you and for me, church. It means that we need to be involved in our communities. We need to be involved in the culture around us. But how should we be involved in the culture around us, right? Uh, Jesus, he prays in John 17 that we would be in the world, but not of the world. So how does our involvement um, happen? What does it look like? There's a tool that I ended up hearing from a pastor about a decade ago. It's three R's as far as how Christians engage in culture, and I found it to be really helpful for me. I hope it's helpful for you as well. Uh, when it comes to Christians engaging in culture, the three R's are reject, receive, and redeem. Right, we'll go through those lists briefly. When it comes to culture, what do we reject in culture as Christians? Outrightly, we reject strip clubs. There's no such thing as Christian strip clubs, okay? But we outrightly reject pornography. There's no such thing as Christian pornography. There's no such thing as Christian pride parades. We reject these things. This is the light analogy. We are speaking out and exposing the darkness, calling it what it is and calling it wrong. And so there's things in culture that we, as followers of Jesus, obviously reject. But there's things in culture that we can receive. There's some things in sociology that we can receive. Some things in psychology that are helpful. Things that bring about human flourishing. This would be the doctrine known as common grace where people who don't know Jesus, don't love God, and perhaps don't even believe God exists are being of benefit in society, blessing society, and we as the people of God, rather than rejecting that, we can receive that. God's about human flourishing, and if we find people that although aren't Christian and although don't know Jesus that are about human flourishing, we can partner with them. We can receive some of the things that they have. Last thing, though, is redeem. What do we redeem in culture? Well, we can redeem something like social media. I don't think it's irredeemable. It's not inherently evil, nor is it inherently good. It's a tool. It's a tool that can be used to communicate the gospel. It's a tool that can be used to do great things. One of my favorite examples of redeeming, though, and redemption in culture is uh, the rapper Lecrae. I know some of you might know who he is. Some of you don't. Uh, but he's a, a rapper who happens to be Christian started his own record label called Reach Records, and so he's got a group of, of guys and gals that are on his team. And uh, rap is commonly known as objectifying women and highlighting and idolizing the lifestyle of sex, fame, and money and just being your own God, essentially. 
And so what he does is he comes along and he talks about what it means to be a faithful husband, what it means to be faithful to your kids, what it means to love Christ like Christ loves the church. And he's injecting into this culture that is otherwise completely antithetical to the gospel, and he's bringing in gospel messages. He's redeeming the avenue of wrath, and praise be to God for that. So those three R's, reject, receive, and redeem, are ways in which we can diagnose how we are to be involved in culture. And the reason why this is significant, church, is because historically the church has made huge errors when it comes to getting involved in culture. Huge errors. The two ditches that churches often fall into are retracting fully from culture or being fully absorbed by it. Churches, when it comes to being retracted by culture, this is the holy huddle Christians. This is the holy country club, essentially, where everything in the culture is bad, everything's sinful, we're the ones that are good, we're the ones that are right, we're the only ones that have the truth, and we begin to retract away from culture to where we're the only ones that are right. These are often really small groups. They often have cult-like behavior. Uh, they often are in Texas. I don't know why that is. You probably shouldn't move there. It's just a thought. Um, so here's what happens, okay? We're talking about salt as an analogy. Uh, I think about it like this. I think about, man, in your kitchen cabinet, up on the shelf, uh, you've got, in the mason jars, you've got kosher salt. You've got table salt. You've got your pink Himalayan salt. And it looks really good. And it looks really aesthetically pleasing in the shelf. But yet, if it's not used, it is absolutely useless. Absolutely useless. Uh, this is the track for Christians of being fundamentalism. Right? This is the Westboro Baptist Church type folk. This is the uh, Church of Wells group that's in Texas. <laughs> I'll bring that up again. Uh, Christians retracting from culture. So the other ditch then is uh, Christians getting absorbed by culture though. All right? So perhaps it starts with good intentions of, hey, I want to be involved in culture. Hey, I want to see people come to know Christ. Perhaps it starts with good intentions, but say, okay, what is the culture like? Oh, they don't like that I say this? Okay, I won't say that. Okay, well, they don't, they don't want us to do this or sing these songs. Okay, well, we won't sing these songs so that people will come in and, and know Jesus. And what happens is conversion takes place, but it takes place in reverse, meaning this. Uh, the world's thoughts become our thoughts. The world's ways become our ways. And eventually, the world's gods become our gods to where we're inviting their idols into the church, and we've completely lost Jesus or Christianity. This would be the liberal Christianity. This would be progressive Christianity. And let me say this. I give the title Christian to both, but both really aren't Christ-like at all. Jesus was fully involved in culture, fully involved in the marketplace, and yet he was really staunch about what was true and what was right. So the fear I have for us, though, Mercy Fellowship, is this. My fear for us as a church here in Marysville is that we wouldn't do enough is that we wouldn't actually be doing something. Because isn't that what Jesus says in the verses that we looked at? Jesus goes ahead and he talks about, hey, the salt that's not even being used, it, it's worthless. It's worth just being tossed out. In fact, some of the other gospels go further than that, and they say it's not even worth being thrown onto the manure pile. Jesus, with the, the analogy of the light, he gives this humorous picture where he says no one lights a lamp and then puts a five-gallon bucket over it afterwards. 
fear I have for us, church, is that we would not be doing anything in our day. And so you and me, if we're in Christ, we've been created, and we've been created for the purpose of being salt and light in this world, of being an instrument of human flourishing. And I'll tell you what, Mercy Fellowship, I've seen this. I've experienced this. Some of you, you have experienced the church being salt and light in the world. An example I've given before is I did a short-term mission trip to Guatemala about a decade ago, and it was so fascinating. I was there for about two weeks just to see what they're doing as acting as salt and light. Uh, The missionaries, they felt called to go to Guatemala, and so they did. They started with a small group. It eventually turned into a church. And so people are meeting Jesus. Legacies are forever changing. They have eternal salvation because of Christ amazing things and so now okay they've done that they wanted to plant uh, some schools so they got some funding they planted a school so now they're creating jobs in the in the area so the economy is getting stimulated kids are having a k-12 through program that they would have never had otherwise so they're getting opportunities they would have never had otherwise they started opening up dental facilities so now these kids can go to be dental assistants or even work their way towards being a dentist someday when I was there, there was a commercial farmer uh, for tomatoes there. And he said, hey, did they grow tomatoes here? And they said, no. And he said, well, we'll change that. We'll make sure that happens. So he spent hundreds of thousands of dollars of his own money helping these locals grow tomatoes. He would get a call from a, a mayor in another town close by, and they would say, hey, how come you put the school in, in that town? And they said, well, they gave us land. And he said, oh, okay, well, if they gave you land, and if we, can we give you land and you'll put a school in our town? He's like, yeah, for sure. So he's planting churches, planting schools, building dental and hospital facilities, and helping the economy. And this is just a couple. This is just one man, one woman, felt called by God to go to Guatemala. And 20 years later, the harvest that's taking place is phenomenal. Phenomenal church. Locally, here, what do we do? Well, praise be to God, our building's a big building. So it's used and facilitated by schools and other churches. Uh, we've even got mercy kits to help care for marginalized people in our area. You think about it. The people that care primarily for the, the least of these in our community is the church. Think of the Everett Gospel Mission. Think of the Seattle Gospel Mission, the Salvation Army. This is what the church does. This is in our bones as being salt and light in the earth. Now, I recognize, church, I'm not oblivious to it. I recognize that me being a Christian up here in the pulpit telling you that the Christian worldview is the one that brings flourishing. Yeah, that, that, you're expecting that. Um, that. That doesn't hold a lot of weight. Um, but it holds a lot of weight when someone on the other side of the aisle says that as well. So there's a, an article that came kind of viral back in 2008 from a guy named Matthew Paris, and he lives in England, and, and uh, he grew up as a missionary in Africa, and then eventually he went back to England and went to school, became an atheist, and then he ended up writing this article of his experience when he went back to Africa uh, as an older gentleman uh, around Christmas time. And he says this, and it'll be up on the screen so you can follow along as well. Traveling in Malawi refreshed another belief I've had, one I've been trying to banish all of my life, but an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and it has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of secular non-governmental organizations, government projects and international aid efforts, 
These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. Whenever we entered a territory worked by missionaries, we had to acknowledge that something changed in the faces of the people we passed and spoke to. Something in their eyes and the way they approached you, direct, man-to-man, without looking down or away. And I love this last line. Listen carefully. Removing Christian evangelism from the African equation may leave the continent at the mercy of the maligned fusion of Nike, the witch doctor, the mobile phone, and the machete. That dude's an atheist. Doesn't even believe in a God. And yet he's like, oh yeah, it is obvious the benefit that Christianity has in the world. And so he says and ends exactly what I believe to be true. If you remove the church from society, hell breaks loose. But if the church acts as the church, as salt and light in the world, we give this world a taste of heaven. This morning, Mercy Fellowship, if you're in Christ, you, not your neighbor, not your spouse, not someone else, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. How insane is that? How insane is that? So church, I'm not trying to burden you. Hear me on this. I'm not trying to say, hey, unless you're a radical missionary, you're not doing it. Uh, I'm giving you examples that are, that are big examples, but really what these people have done is that they've loved God and loved people where God has placed them. It's as simple as that. They've really believed in what Jesus has said and sought to obey him, and the results have been profound. And so a task I want us all to consider this morning, church, I'd love for us to pray to God and ask for fresh ways of how we can be salt and light in our community. I think we do good things here at Mercy Fellowship, but I think we can do more as a church. Uh, The reason for that, though, is that we've been called not to only be consumers of culture, but creators of it. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 28, and he reiterates what was mandated in Genesis 3. Uh, Not Genesis 3, Genesis 2. We are meant to be creators of culture because here's the result of being a creator of culture. Jesus says if we act as salt and light, the result is this. People will see our good works, and they will give glory to our Father who is in heaven. I don't know if you catch the tone in that, but the tone is that there's hope for change in society when the church acts as the church. And it's so easy to get bogged down by by the culture, right? It's so easy to feel hopeless about what is going on in this world. You think about it, just the last couple weeks, right? Uh, An elementary school gets shot up in Texas. You also have over, um, I don't know where it is, but you have a, a, a drag show that parents are taking their children to and allowing children to put dollar bills in their underwear. Um, 3,000 abortions per day still happen. And not to mention the war in Ukraine is still taking place. And you can just kind of add all those things up on top of your own personal situations that are going on and think, man, is there hope for change? Will things actually get better? Will things actually improve? And what we see from Jesus here in the text is the obvious answer of, yeah, things can improve. Society can, in fact, get better when the church acts as the church. And so hear me on this, church. We may have too shallow a view of Jesus if we think that he can't do anything about our current events in the world. Uh, Is Seattle too big for Jesus? Is Marysville too big for Jesus? 
Are some of the cultural issues we face, are they too big for Jesus? I don't believe they are. I think when, the, uh, when Jesus calls us to imitate him, that great things happen. So this morning, church, if you're in Christ, you've been called to be salt and light in this world. You're part of God's plan for redemption in this world by the good works and character we display. But the catch is this. We need to have those good works defined for us, right? We can't have a TikToker telling us what, what good works are. Uh, we can't have a YouTube preacher telling us what good works are, right? That can be supplemental. You can add that onto the side. But we need God and God's word to define for us what good works look like. And so we continue on looking at verses 17 verse 20. He says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The section really what uh, scholars and commentators believe is like the, this is the nucleus, if you will, or the heart of this whole Sermon on the Mount. And it talks about fulfilling the law. And what does that mean? Well, the law, another way of interpreting that is instruction. That'd be the first five books in the Old Testament, the Torah. This is what Moses wrote. And after that, then would be the prophets. And that would be the remainder of the Old Testament. And it's really just meant to encompass all of the Old Testament. And Jesus is making the astonishing claim that he alone is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament speaks of. Right? What does this mean? It means it's all pointing towards, it's all looking towards Jesus. Because you think about the law. What does the law do? Well, the law is looking forward to someone who would obey it perfectly, and as a result of obeying it perfectly, would have perfect communion with the Father. And Jesus does that. The prophets, they looked forward to a Messiah and one who would come and redeem this world. And Jesus does that. So this is important for us to get this, church. If we misread the Old Testament, if we read the Old Testament void of Jesus, crazy things happen, okay? The result is that we can either become our own savior because we've done enough good things and followed enough of the right laws, or we're going to fall into unbelief on the other side, saying that it's impossible to follow all of these laws. And the truth of the matter, church, is this. It really is impossible to follow all of the laws perfectly. We can't do it. And so what's our relationship with the law, right? Jesus, obviously, in what we just read, he wants us to obey it. He wants us to follow it. What's our relationship to it? And this is important, church. This is incredibly important because there's things in the Old Testament you will read and you're going to say, that is crazy. Am I supposed to follow that? I'll tell you what, when we're talking about the holy huddle, I had a, a, a boss, I did gutters for a short time, and it was a short time because I found out that job was sucked. And... Uh, Anyways, I worked with him, and he was one of these guys that was a holy huddle Christian. It was him and two families in his home gathered on a Sunday watching a YouTube preacher. And the two hills that he wanted to die on and that he let me know about was that he couldn't eat pork and that he couldn't cut his beard. I don't know how he got to that conclusion. His YouTube preacher got to that conclusion, and he did so by reading the Old Testament wrong. 
Um, so that happens, actually. So historically, though speaking, though, church, how we understand the law, historically, the church has broken up the law into three parts, all right? A lot of studying and a lot of things that we're looking at today, I understand, but three categories for the Old Testament law to help us understand when we read it and make sense of it. The first would be the ceremonial law, the judicial law, and the moral law. When we look at the ceremonial law, this is the priestly laws and the sacrificial laws. Now, did Jesus fulfill these? Yeah, Jesus fulfilled these. How so? Hebrews says Jesus is our great high priest. You'd have a priest who would enter before God on your behalf, and Jesus does so. What about the sacrificial laws? Are those fulfilled? Yeah, they're fulfilled. Jesus is our Passover lamb. You think of the song we even sang. It's, it was reiterating what John the Baptist was saying, where he saw Jesus, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So you have the ceremonial law in the Old Testament. You also have the judicial law, okay? Nations make themselves distinct by the laws they have, and Israel back then was no different. So they had laws for, like circumcision. Boys, when they turned eight days old, would have to be circumcised. They had laws about not getting tattoos because they didn't want you to look like pagan worshipers who worshipped false gods. They had rules as far as health goes for not eating shellfish and not eating pork. Uh, they had rules, in fact, of not even wearing the... the uh, the wrong material as well. This is really kind of an idea of like, if you're wearing the, the team jersey, you need to be distinct. And so are those fulfilled? Yeah, those are fulfilled. Uh, when the New Testament talks about circumcision, it talks about circumcisions of no use. In fact, what really matters is the circumcision of the heart. What else is fulfilled? Well, eating shellfish or, or eating pork, it talks in Mark 6. Jesus says that all food has been declared clean. Okay. These things find their fulfillment in Jesus. And so study them, church. Learn them. Try to figure out what they mean. But know this, they're not binding on the Christian conscience because they have been fulfilled in Christ. There is one section in the Old Testament, though, as far as law, that is binding on the Christian, and that is the moral law. That's the Ten Commandments that we have. And they're fulfilled by Christ as well. He's the one who has fully obeyed the Ten Commandments perfectly, and yet all of the Ten Commandments are reiterated in the New Testament in some form or fashion. So, this is meant for us to follow. What follows from that, though, church, is this, right? We can talk about laws all day, but where do we get the desire to actually carry out obeying the laws? How, how do we actually follow through with obeying Jesus' commands? I want to do this for you, just give you a trajectory for what we've covered so far, because we've covered a lot, and especially even thinking about what Matt preached on a couple weeks ago. The trajectory of the Christian life. You're an outcast in the world, you've been hurt by the world, uh, the world's rejected you in some form or fashion, you've been invited in by Christ. He saves you, heals you, restores you, invites you to go back out into the world to be salt and light, but he doesn't leave you by yourself when you do so. He sends the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, and the uh, Holy Spirit gives us the ability to obey the law and produce good works. And church, know this, the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in our life, this is a non-negotiable for us as followers of Jesus. The reason for that is this, we need to have the desires to obey if we are going to be faithful to the end. We must have those desires in us if we're going to be faithful to the end. Jesus, he gives us a warning about this. He says 
from the section we just read. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not even that you're just going to be like the least in the kingdom of heaven. He says you're not even going to enter it. So what about the Pharisees and scribes? Well, these people, they were, they were the definition of righteousness in their society. In fact, if anyone was close to perfect, it was them. They followed not only upwards of 240 laws, but they had the opportunity to memorize them all. So they had a lot of time to know them and understand them. So what's Jesus saying to you and to me? It's not that they follow 240 and we as Christians follow 241. That's not it. What he is saying, though, is how deep does the law go in your heart? Because that's what's important for him. A question I want us to consider this morning, church, is this. How much do we truly have a desire to follow and obey Jesus? Another way of saying that is how much do we love him? Jesus, he says this, Matthew 15, verse 8, he says, hey, people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And I tell you what, being up here preaching, I find that terrifying, because it's so easy just for me to go ahead and declare who Jesus is and what he's done and talk about Jesus, but I need to do a heart check. Is my heart right with Christ? Do I actually have a desire and a motive to want to be his and be owned by him? I want you to look at this. The Apostle John, he writes this in much in line of what we're talking about he says this, my little children, talking as a grandfather to uh, older in the faith to, to new believers, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him, right? He's given you confidence that you might know you belong to Jesus. Verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Right in line with what we're talking about. Church, Jesus, he wants your good works. Yes, he wants you to be a cultural producer. Yes, and amen to all of that. But more importantly than all of that, Jesus wants your heart. It is from your heart that the rivers of life flow. It is from the heart that the overflow of that speaks, the Bible says. Jesus wants your heart. And we find ourselves in a place where we are in desperate need of the Holy Spirit always to give us this desire to obey and follow him. And so let me conclude with saying this. If you're here this morning and you find that you lack the desire to follow Jesus and be obedient to him, I would encourage you to pray to the Father that you would, you would have those desires. Right? I understand this. I understand our desires are kind of like the waves of the sea. They come and go. They ebb and flow. At some moments, they're red hot and they want to do everything for Jesus. and other moments, they are ice cold. And in those moments, though, when they are ice cold, we need to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he's done for us in order to kickstart that engine again of love and devotion for Jesus. And so let me say this. If you grew up in church, uh, particularly an evangelical church, they would end their services with doing altar calls. 
And they would say, hey, if you want to surrender your life to Jesus, would you come to the front? Or would you surrender your life to Jesus, would you raise your hand? They would ask it in another way. Hey, if, if you want to give your heart to Jesus, would you go ahead and, and come to the front or raise your hand? Those are good questions to ask. They're not wrong questions to ask. But the Bible asks a fundamentally different question. The Bible's not asking about your tracker, ra- track record. It's asking about Christ's track record. And it asks, hey, has Jesus fully given his heart for you? And the answer to that is, yeah, absolutely. Has Jesus fully surrendered his life for you? The answer to that is yes, absolutely. This morning, church, reach out to Jesus. He's far more willing to forgive. He is far more willing to love and to help and to sustain and to give us what we need than we could possibly fathom. I think of what the Apostle Paul writes. He said, God, who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all, will he not also graciously with him give us all that we need? You've been called this morning, church. We've been called this morning to be salt and light in the earth and to be cultural producers. Let's pray.